and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, another special guest has uh, joined us for this episode. So Jeremy, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm a freelance games journalist. I write for PC Gamer and Edge, VG247, Rock Paper Shotgun, places of that nature. Yes, Jeremy Peel, to give him his full name, is um, one of my favourite games writers in the UK. Does really good takes on mainstream games, which is uh, my sort of jam when it comes to games writing. Delighted you could join us, Jeremy. And I wanted to start a bit by asking about your career. So how did you get started in games media? Yeah, so I, I guess I feel a little bit like I was born out of time in that I was a big sort of magazine person as a teenager. Did a magazine journalism MA, which at the time felt a bit mad because games magazines were, were closing you know, Endgamer <laughs> around that time and uh, Official Nintendo magazine and, and others I've got a slightly depressing mausoleum of final issues <laughs> from that period in my garage uh, but I kind of wanted a sort of um, classical education in feature writing rather than um, you know trying to d- desperately keep up with a, whatever Twitter or Twitter was kind of new then you know, now I imagine the online journalism tutors are kind of desperately trying to work out TikTok and what have you. <laughs> um, I wanted to learn how to write like like they did in the magazines I loved, and then I didn't write for a magazine for seven or eight years. I think after that, I got a job at PC Games N, which was set up by um, Tim Edwards, who'd been PC Gamer editor just prior to that. So that was pretty exciting for me, and that was just a really good sort of training ground for. For that kind of style and yeah much later i left and since then i've just kind of had a sort of frenzied approach to writing for all the magazines that i read as a teenager it's been a sort of dream fulfillment for me for the last three years professionally almost i've got yeah. a question about the magazine journalism course you did yeah was that like focused mainly on writing or did it also like have like magazine craft you know like working with designs and stuff like what 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 sort of marked it out specifically as magazine journalism? It was sort of multidisciplinary. Like, I, I had to sort of muddle through InDesign. Um, right. Which, for listeners, is the software that most magazines are made with, I believe. Mm. And some kind of design stuff, although that was not really my 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 skill. Um, <laughs> sort of the final dissertation bit was we had to we had to make a magazine. Like, I conceived a... What was it? It was it was a it was a men's magazine for grooms or something. It was it it was all right. It was fine. Grooms, as in getting married. As in getting married. Um, oh. Yeah, there was. <laughs> it wasn't conceptually that interesting, really. But um, but yeah, we had to sort of do different different sort of segments of working on magazines. But it was mainly writing, and the there were all these sort of you know interesting exercises like. Pick someone living and write an obituary for them, which is something that journalists <laughs> do, right? Like you have to, for for a famous person, they have to have the obituaries pretty much ready to go when that <laughs> yeah. person goes. But yeah, I, I I remember writing an obituary for Lee Mack, the comedian who is still happily <laughs> with us. <laughs> but I've been to what a s- sinister exercise. <laughs> I know it must be. I hope he never hears this. It'd be so sort of horrible to know, but um. Yeah, I've been to see him recently. I was like, oh, I've got some themes I can write about on Lee Max, so I'll, I'll pretend he's dead. I like, I like the idea of, like, oh, I saw him recently. I could imagine him dead. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, he sweats a lot on stage, but otherwise he appears to be a quite a healthy person. So I've got no, had no reason to suspect at the time. 
Amazing. Yeah, I mean, maybe you should like do an article before that that just says, uh, Lee Mack is not dead, but he is a bit sweaty on stage. That could be your headline. So that's really cool. Um, did you sneak any game stuff into the, the Grooms magazine? Like, uh, is it just a quick review of Call of Duty 3 or something like that? Or um, was it all pretty straight down the line? God, I might have done. I definitely reconfigured some of my game stuff from that time that I was doing, you know, on an amateur level to, to get me marks on my degree. Mm. So there were there definitely were journalism tutors reading about uh, Minecraft, you know, sort of like uh, <laughs> poor Kieran Gillen imitations of Minecraft New Games journalism, that sort of thing. <laughs> okay, so um, what are the games that get you into um, the medium, Jeremy? What are the things that you're obsessed with as a younger man? So uh, I guess Immersive Sims were very early for me. Some UK listeners will remember the five quid games that you could get you know, in Asda or other kind of supermarkets, it would be on a tall stand, and, and I think the brands were sold out. There's one called Explosive yeah. that started with an X. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and the PC Gamer <laughs> Presents one, which was pretty cool because it had the review score on the front, and you were guaranteed a sort of eighty plus. Game. I always wondered is that I always wondered is that dodgy as a former editor of PC Gamer that um, <laughs> <laughs> games were being sold with PC Gamer on the front? In those. I think in the sold out ones they had Deus Ex and they had Thief Two, so they I ended up playing those pretty early on in my sort of teenage years, and we only had a PC in my house, so that was that for me really. Hmm. You know, I remember playing Thief Two, the curtains drawn and the sound turned up a bit too high and jumping when the the guard shouted at me. <laughs> uh, good stuff. I, I always think it's interesting when you talk to people who were like predominantly PC players or only PC players in their youth their perception and ideas about games are just slightly slightly different in terms of like I I wonder if it's kind of hard getting excited about the console scene that like your peers are are mostly into because you've played something which was a bit more mechanically sophisticated for the time I think there's less of that golf now but definitely back then I felt like there was some, not I don't want to call it snobbery towards consoles, but I felt like th- there was a clear divide between people who grew up exclusively PC. Yeah, there, there definitely was some snobbery, and multi-platform wasn't a thing then, was it? You, if you had a different platform, you were playing utterly different games with different kind of design principles. It does feel like coming from a slightly different starting point to some peers. You know, I, I played kind of Mario 64 and some PlayStation stuff at friends' houses growing up, but the one for me I could never get my head around is JRPGs. Just They're just so... It, it felt like an affront to me initially that they were called RPGs <laughs> and they didn't really give you any choices. It's nothing like <laughs> right. Baldur's Gate and the, the stuff that I'd grown up with. And I still feel like I wouldn't be qualified to review a JRPG. Do you, do you still feel that, like, when you see people getting, like, hyped for big console releases now, do you still have a bit of distance from those? I don't know, because it feels like around the time I kind of went to uni and started working, that's when the big multi-platform boom happened. And that's when a lot of the developers that I'd grown up with crossed over. You know, Irrational mm. did Bioshock and... Bioware did Mass Effect. There's others that I now can't think of, but it, it felt like PC became multi-platform at that time, and still now, a lot of the big stuff and the stuff that it influenced on, on consoles has has pulled in all those kind of things that I was familiar with. So it's it's rare now, I think, for me to see a big console game and be like, I just don't, I don't know where this is coming from at all. 
She went. Just, you went sitting there on Thursday, just shrugging through the PlayStation showcase. <laughs> no, I, I feel like like I was laughing at the idea of Knights of the Old Republic now being a PlayStation exclusive. Like that is <laughs> right nuts to me. For you know, Bioware were quintessentially PC, and then I guess quintessentially Xbox. But and now for them to be on PlayStation, and that's just everyone. That makes sense to everyone. That would have been unfathomable. Mm. when I was growing up. Yeah, for sure. So, Jeremy, we've brought you on this episode because we're going to talk about immersive sims in um, uh, throughout and go quite deep into that genre in the second half of this episode. But we've also been playing uh, Deathloop on this podcast. So, basically, we're going to talk a bit about Arcane's new game. PS5 exclusive, although it's out on PC as well, published by Bethesda, now owned by Xbox, which itself is a kind of bizarre thing. But we've got some like deep impressions of, of, of Deathloop coming up a little bit later. But, Jeremy, before we go into what the kind of deal with Deathloop is. As a kind of freelancer, I wanted to ask a little bit about that. So how do you feel like you've made your mark in the world of freelancing? Hmm. I guess one of the things that feels different about freelancing is you can really, really go deep on something. I I tend to kind of fixate in my tastes. I'll get into something again and I will just... <laughs> at the moment, I'm reading The Witcher books, playing Thronebreaker and watching the series at once which I think would be a bit much for some but I kind of I kind of like to go hard on a thing when I'm when I'm enjoying it and freelance really lets you do that if you're working on stuff somewhere you can't say I've rediscovered the driver games I'm going to proceed to write about driver for a full month that's a really hard sell for an editor when they're trying to cover the spectrum of games but if you're freelance, you can pitch things to various places. And I think I did end up writing a full month's worth of stuff about Driver because I was tired of not seeing anything written about Driver. And I got to just <laughs> fill that gap myself. So that's a. I love that about freelancing. I was going to say, I like that that comes from like sort of a genuine obsession with something rather than the sort of cynicism of like, oh, I've played a bit of Driver. I now need to hawk 10 driver pieces to sort of justify this to myself. <laughs> yeah, this is a thing. It's really, I think um, when I first went freelance, and a lot of people, when they start writing freelance, they think, oh God, I've got to get the big game. The one game purchase I regret, or that I only got for professional reasons, was Anthem. And I think I only got <laughs> one one sort of commission out of it in the end because I didn't right. love it and I didn't have a lot to say about it. Actually, when you're freelance, it makes sense to kind of furrow those peculiar, you know, areas that other people aren't thinking about. You have the space to do that, and it makes sense. You then bring something to editors, and they're like, "Oh, I've, I've not never thought about that because why? Why would I be thinking about Driver Three in 2021? <laughs> why would I?" And yet I was. Yeah, so well, that's cool. Yeah, so another eight years though, Jeremy. I reckon you can start doing your anthem retrospectives for um, different outlets. Yeah, just, mis- you know, play the miserable, long game on that one. depressing anthem retrospectives. <laughs> okay, great. Well, um, should we take a short break there, and then we'll come back and discuss Death Lips with Matthew? Here we go. Let's do it. You thought I'm dead and done. You'll know for sure tonight. I'm rising from my shallow grave. And I'm holding my switchblade tight Cause you can blast me with dynamite But I won't rest in pieces I'm a revenant baby Welcome back to the podcast. So, me and Jeremy, we've both finished Arcane's Death Loop, which is just released on PS5 and PC at the time that you're listening to this. 
So we played an absolute bunch of the game. I think I'm nearing 30 hours in the game. Matthew, you've played a bit too, right? I've played like three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Matthew just got code. But as I mentioned in a previous episode, I've had the game for a little while now in my flat and I've been happily playing it this whole time. So, Jeremy, let's just um, kick off with it. So this is a game set in a time loop on an island called Black Reef in the 60s. You play a character called Colt who wakes up with a hangover, doesn't really know what's going on. And over time you discover these targets across the island called visionaries and your goal to try and break the time loop is to kill all eight of the visionaries in one loop in one day so what were your what were your impressions of this so i love arcane's games but i think recently i've become sort of hyper aware of the sort of guilt that they put on you I think a lot of us kind of like that about their games and about immersive sims they kind of hold you to account for your actions and they say well we know you just killed literally everyone on that bridge and you didn't need to do that (laughs) Um, but they're also great action games and you can kind of end up feeling a little punished for indulging in the action because of that sort of guilt cocktail that comes afterwards and Deathloop to me felt custom built to allow you to indulge in that stuff without feeling bad about it like there's, um, mm-hmm. you know, that premise, the day repeats, everybody comes back to life. By definition, there are no consequences for killing somebody, at least, you know, in the course of the game, generally. You know, w- once you start thinking about breaking the loop, that maybe becomes another matter. But it's a perfect sort of combat sandbox for a developer that generally is, whether they've meant to or not, have pushed people towards stealth and kind of moving through these incredibly intricate spaces where lots of things can interact and create surprises without interacting with them very much at all, just trying to keep keep to yourself and not, you know, kind of stirring the pot. So definitely, to me, felt really kind of freeing from the off to be able to go, I can try things, really loud things, and just see what happens and, and not worry about whether I'm going to be frowned at by my mum who lives in a heart in my pocket it's a dishonoured <laughs> reference it's going to be very confusing for people who haven't played dishonoured uh, uh, that's just Jeremy being weird yeah classic Jeremy <laughs> yeah so uh, it definitely is is more of an action game than dishonoured was I think what's interesting about this game is it very early on starts furnishing you with guns and powers and like you say enemies in the game have a disposable quality they sort of look like crash test dummies or mannequins they're quite odd looking and um you know uh, the day is going to repeat so like you say there's no consequence really to killing them and um it certainly doesn't um because they don't really have faces you don't really feel bad about killing them it's just uh, they're just there you murder them you move on and i think that that does create a slightly different vibe i think what i found really interesting about this game is that i don't know if they exactly figured out what the right push and pull between stealth game and action game was because when you enter a, a level in this game it's um the island is broken up into four areas across four times of day and when you leave one of those areas time moves forward so it's broken up between morning noon afternoon and night and when you enter an environment you're just in stealth and then when you get caught a bunch of exclamation marks come up on the screen to indicate that an enemy has seen you and then you're suddenly in a firefight. So I personally found that the game struggled a little bit to make you feel fully empowered to just kind of like go haywire 
and kill a load of dudes and indulge in your powers just because the ui you may disagree with this jeremy i think the ui in this game is telling you or the hud rather is telling you that you have made a mistake by being caught by enemies i was wondering what you thought of that yeah i know what you mean i think those exclamation marks go a long way toward that feeling it's it's that that thing isn't it which is a classic arcane thing an immersive sim thing of your enemies aren't instantly in a fight with you they're this sort of multi-stage ai which is very familiar to people now but you know when you enter somewhere people don't know where you are and you see the process of them spotting you and yeah that can feel like oh that's something i've i've failed fundamentally i guess i don't know if i've sort of recently playing these games as action games sort of train myself to to not feel bad when i see that happen but i, I do know exactly what you mean yeah yeah i, I will say from the, the the little bit i've played i was surprised by the the tone of that that when you enter the areas you are in a sort of stealth mode because the the messaging and the adverts have been so kind of zany and sort of action filled I, I i was actually struck by how much it did feel stealthy maybe more so like in like the early parts of the day where because the areas are naturally a bit quieter at the start and then they kind of uh they sort of change as you know as the day goes on and things kind of ramp up a bit um but yeah i was i was actually surprised at how at least in these first few hours that you are kind of on the back foot and having to take things you know a bit 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 more quietly yeah yeah I mean, maybe that seems daft because you've both now played the whole game and you've amassed this action arsenal and you're really competent, like, action presences in that world now. But definitely at the outset, you know, you are very aware of not getting caught. Yeah, I think it does have a natural arc in that way where in the beginning you're trying to make sense of these levels and find stuff and, you know, maybe find a clever way to kind of clear a bunch of enemies and you know by triggering a trap or something like that and it does kind of more naturally lend itself to sneaking around i feel like the default is a kind of action stealth in this one where you've got your sort of machete and your almost kind of far cry-esque thing of running around doing kind of death from above leaps onto people and um my, my setup for a long time at the beginning of the game was to have a machete in my right hand and a silenced smg i found in my left hand and try and kind of like use them in in combination but i guess over time when you become familiar with the levels and you've got a specific goal in mind for one of them you're not so fussed about you know i'm just going to cleave through this bunch of enemies in combat to get the thing i need and get out again yeah i think that's true i think what's what's interesting in this game is there is you know obviously it's set in a time loop but it's not a roguelike it doesn't reset your progress as such the day resets but because early on you get this resource called residuum or residuum i don't, don't know how you pronounce that but um, you use that to infuse the different guns and uh, powers you find in the game which are called slabs as well as um weapon trinkets and character trinkets which offer you different perks so for example if you want a double jump that's a character trinket you can equip four of those whereas a weapon trinket is something like you know you can be ac- more accurate over long distances with a short range gun that's that's an example of a weapon trinket and guns can have three of those each so over time you accumulate this vast arsenal and like jeremy says you can go into a later area and clear people out and it's not like a big deal i will say that the the idea that the game that maybe i felt like the game leans a bit too much towards 
making stealth feel like the right way to play it actually only crystallized for me when i got to the end game and i was revisiting areas and i was switching on some of my more powerful slabs like um uh, carnesis which uh, is like a, a sort of telekinetic kind of tentacle whip attack you can like um suspend an enemy in midair and and or like you can throw them into other enemies and it's just a, it's a cool power and havoc which lets you um uh, absorb damage uh, without losing health basically and you can customize that to have a kind of like explosive uh, sort of action at the end of at the end of using it which is quite cool and i was kind of storming into areas with my fancy shotgun my fancy um gun that you can fire uh, while reload while it's still firing that's a cool gun <laughs> and i was trying to make sense of like the game bombards you with so much information when you're caught that even when you're that powerful i think it still may be Maybe it's just a failure of messaging a little bit, but it still makes it feel like stealth is the right way. How did you feel once you reached the end game, Jeremy? Did you just not think about that at all? I sort of wonder how much of it is... So this is a game where the order of events in the story and in the kind of arc of your weapons and the kind of powers you get is different for everyone, I think. So what you end up with early on, I think, probably shapes how you approach it quite a lot like if i hadn't found that silenced smg early on i don't think maybe i wouldn't have attempted that kind of action stealth approach that i had because i would have just been left with the nail gun which i think you talked about on a previous episode which is quite tricky to to master as a stealth weapon yeah it's it's a weird one uh, yeah i would say I mean, it's interesting when you sort of talk about like the messaging of it and you know i think a problem arcane have had in the past or not a problem but a thing they've run up against is that you know they have these very complex action systems but people kind of you know ignore them totally to play as stealth and you know i feel like this game is like their best attempt at trying to like loosen you up a bit i mean there's some quite explicit messaging in the tutorial phases where it sort of says you know story-wise you've kind of done what you need to do right here right now like you can explore like there's loads here but, like, honestly, you're fine to kind of go on and come back later. And there's literally a box that pops up and says, it's okay to move on and come back later. And I feel like they're trying to kind of teach you something, like, bigger there. And this is probably, like, a wider discussion later when we're talking more generally about immersive sims. But there is a problem of, of with this particular genre, I think, of teaching people, like, how to play them or how to think about them to maybe get the full extent of, of what you can do in them. Yeah, I think that's massive for this game, actually. It's almost re- retraining people at two ends of the spectrum. So you've got people who played Dishonored as a straight action game and finished it in eight hours, just kind of went from A to B to the objective and didn't see all the kind of incredible side stuff that immersive sim heads tend to bang on about. And then there are people like me who... It almost feels like an obligation for me to scour every level in Dishonored, even if I don't necessarily feel like it, because I want to make sure I've seen everything. And with the premise of Deathloop, as you say, you can you can do that kind of A to B run of a level and not worry about having missed stuff. You, you can end up with a really sort of frenetic pace for um, for a mission. I go, well, I'm I'm gonna see all of this eventually because I'm going to be coming back. And equally, if you're not someone who necessarily sees that in a level initially or expects to explore it's going to happen anyway because you're going to be doing these different missions across it and you're going to gradually build up this 
organic knowledge of a place, which I wrote in my review of it, it's a bit like, uh, you know, moving to a new place and you sort of, you know, you, you go to the, I was going to say go to the gym. I don't go to the gym. But you go to <laughs> you go to the gym. What a bogus anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> you go to the office. I don't do that either. Listen, people go to places and they get to know the areas around those places. And then at a certain point, they go on a car journey and then they connect those two places up in their head. And that's how you get mm. to know somewhere. And I feel that that's what a death loop level is like. Yeah, very eloquently put. I think what... It is interesting that one of the triumphs of this game is the structure. And while the time leap, I think, for me, created a little bit of repetition later on, I think the objective system of this game means that you always feel like you you have a a goal that you're moving towards. You never feel, like, helpless in the time loop. It uses, like, a clue system to basically tell you, well, this person's going to be at this place at this time, so you might want to go there and see what the deal is. Or, well, this person needs this item from this location, so maybe go check it out. And over time, you're kind of like following these strands of clues until you reach a key piece of information you need to break the to do the final loop, basically, and finish the game. And it's a very slow journey towards that, but it's an exciting one. As I mentioned on that previous episode, you feel like a detective a lot of the time. Jeremy, I was really curious what you made of this structure because when we talked a bit about it in the um, in our DMs, you suggested that you come across some like. Uh, a kind of something key before you were supposed to find it and i wondered how that shapes your your experience of the structure of this game yeah i happened to kind of come across a an area beneath one of the levels and realized it could open up areas in in different levels and i was like okay i'm gonna dedicate a few of the in-game days to working this out and it turned out to be kind of attached to what in another game you would imagine to be a third act uh, revelation about the characters but because of the the fact that I decided to plow down in that specific area, I got that early, which is kind of amazing. Like the, the the order of the plot is really sort of up for grabs in this game in a way that's quite unusual. I think it works because alongside that you have a sort of you know your arc of your building powers, and whatever order you get the information in your understanding is building over time and that's explicitly what cult is trying to do he's like come on i've got to i've got to work this out if i'm gonna if i'm gonna fix it then his goal fixing it is is breaking it i think that's really interesting and and the what they do to kind of uh, make that bearable is really clearly and regularly kind of collate what you've got for you and order it all sort of in your menus and in your objectives and tell you what you've got and where you know what that means and where you can go with it it's i don't know it's maybe even a little too keen to do that and occasionally i was like oh i hadn't actually quite put that together myself yet what i had but the game just kind of told me but i I will say like in the very little bit i've played i've already got a couple of bits of information where i'm like do i know that like where did that come from like yeah and I don't know if that's just a quirk of, of, you know, maybe I just missed a bit of NPC dialogue that triggered it. But there's definitely been moments, you know, in that limited time where I've been walking through a room and then, it, and then like, the, the interface has popped up in the bottom corner saying, oh, you now know that so-and-so does this thing. And I, I don't know if I did actually discover that or if, it, if, it, if I did, it was, it was slightly lost on me. And maybe that's just, like, unluckiness. But th- uh, yeah. that's. I had a few moments like that. I think that's kind of. If I have an issue with the storytelling, it's that. 
but if it, I, I feel like if that's necessary to kind of keep you on track and let you know what you have, then I'll I'll take it. I feel like um, I was talking to Matt Purcell of IGN uh, the other day about this. I feel like there's another version of this game where, and maybe this is the game that some people are still expecting at this point, where you really have to work out the puzzle of mm. how to get the visionaries together and how to use all the information you've got. That could have been a lot harder. That could have been a huge chunk of the game. I think if that had been a huge chunk of the game, you would have too much to think about and it would be kind of overbearing. So I I kind of like where they've landed with it, even if it's slightly... I think I agree with you, Matthew. It's slightly overkeen in that regard. Uh, So without without spoiling it for me and our listeners, um, like... I'm assuming this isn't something you could you could in theory solve in your first loop outside of the tutorial because the tutorial was kind of a guided experience through the early hours. I'm assuming you can't like accidentally complete this really easily like that like I get the feeling that it it's going to gate certain stuff behind information that you have to have. Yeah. Your instincts are correct there. You do right. need there's like some bits where you just you need information from another place in order to open a certain door or some, right. or, or get a character in a certain place. Like, um, there's no way you could accidentally do it if that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's good. That's that's my big worry with with like organic kind of detective games is the risk you always run is that some you know clever bastard like me <laughs> can uh, sneak in and type like for example in like her story like you have total freedom there to accidentally stumble onto like the big thing in the first word you type if you were lucky and that can be very sort of uh sort of disheartening sort of experience you know mm. yeah i think i think in this there are definitely certain things you need to complete it that by necessity guide you through kind of revelations and and fun stuff I reckon mm-hmm. if having finished it, you could probably work out the shortest route to those things. You could probably skip some steps. I don't know how you feel about that, Samuel, but it's probably possible. But realistically, most people are going to hit most of the same beats, just in different orders. Right. Yeah, I think that there is still... I, I feel like I got to the the bit that Jeremy mentioned earlier about finding out more about the, the levels. Um as a sort of third act reveal. I did get to slightly later, but generally speaking, there is a, a cadence of discovering information based on the clues that you're given and like going to places for the first or second time that just give you a sort of natural path. I reckon like probably players' journey through the game is going to be about 75% the same between different players. And this is the other thing. You are, I don't think it's a spoiler really to say that there is only one way to kill all, all the targets in one day. It's, that's not to say there's not like you know big permutations to your approach as a kind of like uh, you know as an immersive sim shooter stealth game like there definitely are but it's not like jeremy says it's not like it's not a free form tapestry you're piecing together and you're like okay go here it's this, this exact time shoot this person in the head leave do this this and this it's like right. it's a it's it's a lot more guided than that the game literally lays it out for you step by step so you know maybe to some players that will be that may feel like a compromise but i think you know it's a blockbuster game that's releasing exclusively on ps5 i think that that's not terribly surprising and i think when it works well it creates a breadcrumb trail in a really interesting way makes you feel like a detective i really liked you know early on 
there is uh, in Carl's Bay, one of the areas the um, that's got like a dock area with a, a couple of hangars. There's a target there in the morning. Harriet, who I mentioned on a previous episode, and there is also a shed that's got a bunch of fireworks in it. And if you've been to Updarm, which is probably like the the most detailed location in the game at night, you know there's a party there where fireworks go off. And all, all you know at that point is there must be a connection between these and that that I have to figure out. And like, it took me about 10 more hours to come back and have the solution to that. And I really enjoyed that journey as a player. So I think mm. it is, I think while it can be too guided, it's still good at creating a breadcrumb trail and making the payoff feel exciting. Is that how you felt, Jeremy? Yeah, definitely. And, and the like, interconnectedness of those levels is really like a, a major win for this game I think down to the fact that you can be standing in Updown and look down the cliff and you can see Carl's Bay and vice versa like you it, there's something I, I kind of think of Arcane as like the you know the last heroes of the the level as opposed to open world and what have you like the masters of creating these very distinct spaces with their own characters but even within that they make sure that it's all it's all kind of linked inextricably and there's something really satisfying about seeing something in one level and going I bet if I change that it would change something else I've spotted that may be related in another level. Yeah, for sure I think it's fantastic at that I think as well Matthew, the thing you said earlier about how the game says you can always come back later so one of the first things I did in Updarm at night was there is a visionary target there before you even get the resource known as residuum that lets you carry weapons between levels and i absolutely brute forced it through the front door killing about (laughs) 30 enemies until i murdered this target doing it one by one very painfully and slowly and then after i killed the target colt went there's got to be an easier way to do this (laughs) and i really like that as a touch i would say for my early hours uh, the character of Colt and his voice actor, who I, I don't know who's who's voicing him, is like a huge, huge win in this game. Oh, he like he's really charismatic and he really sells you on the whole situation and carries you through what are quite a confusing first couple of hours. Like I'd say, this asks quite a lot of you from the off. You, you have to kind of go with it for a couple of hours to kind of get your footing to even really get the concept of the game. And he, re- like, his, the fact that he isn't, like, some brainiac, like, he's just sort of constantly in disbelief at the whole thing, I think is, is like, a real crutch. Like, it really, it re- you know, that is, like, an essential part. I don't think, like, it would work at all without him. Yeah. Mm. I love that they lean into the what-did-I-do-last-night hangover angle. It's like if right. Chris Nolan made a kind of, like, dumb teen drinking movie or something <laughs> and yeah the actor that they have for, for Colt really sort of um, he's got a brilliant goofiness to him and a very relatable almost kind of Nathan Drake like he'll say what you're thinking and go mm. I, I don't know what's happening here regularly good good swearing as well a lot of swearing which I liked it I like why well, I, I, I'm enjoying that element of it at the moment <laughs> yeah it makes yeah. It weirdly makes it feel more like it's in our world than um you know, a classic arcane game in a Dishonored sure. or whatever, mm. they'd come up with an alternate swear, wouldn't they, I guess? Or mm. <laughs> People don't swear in those worlds or don't seem to. Yeah, it feels like, although it's sort of removed and it's in the 60s, I think, um, mm. and it's on this strange super ma- supernatural island, 
this is a world we kind of know. Jason E. Kelly is the voice actor behind mm. Colt, by the way. That's the one credit Great. to him. Yeah, absolutely. So I have I, I really want to talk about the story and style a bit more. But like the one thing I was going to note about the journey through this game that I really liked was there are some areas you go through in your effort to learn about how to kill all these visionaries at once you will kill these visionaries multiple times you'll have like a haphazard first go at it and then you'll get better at it over time that's a really cool thing in this game and there are some levels you'll only go to once and they feel like sort of like proper arcane levels so there's an area called fristad rock i think it is and in the morning there's this crooner guy there called frank and to get into his recording studio you have to basically leave your powers at the door and that includes your ability to come back from the dead twice in a level and that is a really like a self-contained arcane level within the game basically it's like you don't have a reason to go there when you're you're in the end game i did go there yesterday just to kind of like potter about but it's like you go there once and kind of do the level and then sort of move on and i thought that was really cool jeremy there's a couple of examples of that how did you feel about that stuff yeah, that one specifically, it, it's, it feels like yeah, a, a self-contained level and you it changes the rules. The things that you rely on, like your reprise, reprise ability, which lets you effectively have three lives per day, that's gone because all of your, all of your powers, are, powers are nulled by going into this paranoid old crooner's uh, studio home. Um, so you've got to play it completely differently. That really feels like a kind of stealth first area. And yeah, and like you say, there's there are certain parts of chunks of the level which end up as really memorable set pieces, which you don't really have a reason to go back to again. Another one is in Updown, which is on a, a separate island, which almost kind of Zelda or Metroidvania style is just not open except at a particular time of day there's a bridge which it just isn't there um so you know by definition that that is kind of its own level and it has its own style it's almost a kind of um by a there's a game designer called charlie montague and he's um would you say he's a sort of peter mono type uh well it definitely like a sort of vocal creative director type you know yeah right. very much so <laughs> and uh, he's running effectively a live action among us in a building off to the side of Updown and you go in there as the invader so that's like a a real kind of set piece moment it's unlike anything else in the game and I have done it a few times but you could do that only once and that's gonna you know it's it's not as if because this is a repeating looping game that it all blurs into one you do have those standout memories yeah for sure the 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 course through the game is um the structure of the game is is yeah very interesting and and well executed i think it doesn't um i got a tiny bit of repetition later on where i was just looking to hoover up some of the last few clues but generally speaking i think they've done that very well considering the timely aspect of the game so let's talk a bit more about the style and story of it then this is where it's very different to previous arcane games obviously we know that you know deathloop is um it's set in the 60s it's got it's got like a matching color palette it's got music that's been original music that sort of fits the time period has like i don't know slightly sort of tv show of the time sort of aesthetic to it you know sort of maybe like an avengersy aesthetic it's, it's a hard mm. thing to pin down like um, a prisoner a bit, or something yeah a bit of james bond as well and yeah i suppose jeremy to ask you about that side of things how did you feel about the um the style of this game versus other arcane games yeah it's very distinct and 
I think because it's closer to the real world, it took a while for it to seep in with me. But by the end, there's a beautiful Elvis-style ballad that plays in certain places in the game. And as we as we talk, the game's not quite out yet. And I'm desperate to find out once, once it's out what that song is because I, I'm completely in love with it. The soundtrack is is stunning. And yeah, all the kind of original songs that are in there really sort of, they date the setting in quite a powerful way. Yeah, for sure. And I think that the uh, the interplay between Colt and Juliana, who in the game is the target hunting you down, they're kind of like pitched as rivals, basically. And they every time you enter an area, there is basically like a new exchange between them. Even after you've uh, finished the game and you're doing bits of the loop again, there'll still be new bits of dialogue you might not have heard before, which is really cool. Matthew, you're early on in the game, but I wondered how you felt about that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, so, like, the bit I've played is very sort of scripted. Like, their relationship, like, you get a lot of it. It's great, though. I mean, she, she's also, like, the voice acting her is absolutely superb, and the whole thing is, like, a lot more playful than I thought it was going to be. Like, I thought she was going to be more of this, like, unknowable thing, but actually she's also quite kind of charismatic and slightly goofy in her own way, but also, like, you know, definitely sort of suitably sort of threatening. I've not had, like, any kind of... um like organic encounter with her I've, I've had like a scripted encounter with her so far but yeah i mean like style wise um i i think it really really delivers I, I i must admit i found a lot of the trailers and advertising for this game like a, a bit kind of hectic and a bit hard to kind of get a hold on hmm. in terms of like exactly what it was going for and you know from what i've seen the game can be that that version of the game like it can get you know spicy and all this stuff going on but in between you know i like that it's still got like the, the you know the attention to detail and the kind of pace of exploration that you'd expect from from an arcane game but it's it's a, a lot friendlier or funnier looking world i like the kind of spice pastiche element of it um it's a little bit like no one lives forever mm-hmm. um weirdly there's a lot in this game that reminds me of we happy few Oh, yeah. um, mm. from a couple of years ago which must have come out while they were working on this I'm not saying it was an influence but I wondered if they felt like the the, the kind of um, the sort of psychedelic kind of sinister kind of combo of it's so brightly coloured but everyone's like a maniac kind of masks, face paint quite uh, the, there's definitely like, there, there's, there's rooms and buildings in this where I thought this could like this could be We Happy Few which yeah, I think is, is pure coincidence, but yeah, um, same influences, I would say. Yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, like I'm, I, I, I'm just surprised at how massive the areas are as well. Like I, I haven't begun to get a grasp of them in, in in what I've played, but you kind of, you know, they're sort of sold as having like a centerpiece of like, oh, there's going to be this big machine in this area, but there's actually like tons of stuff around it, like there the individual areas definitely definitely feel bigger than like any individual area in a dishonored game or whatever and it's it's just kind of exciting because you think well all of this is going to kind of be that arcane quality to discover which is you know i don't they they feel just full of potential whenever you whenever you enter a new space yeah yeah and they're layered quite beautifully you can you can see it in the art it i think it kind of goes back to the to Dishonored when I came working with uh, Victor Antonov and he's often kind of credited mm-hmm. with designing the look of uh, City 17 in Half-Life 2 mm-hmm. and his stuff had that kind of you know 
City 17 is a kind of Eastern European city with a sort of totalitarian, totalitarian alien thing layered on top and Dunwall is a kind of Victorian Edinburgh slash London with again these sort of technological crushing aspects built onto it that tell a story and with Deathloop you've got a kind of um, it's apparent that you know you go to Updarm it's like this was a fishing village at one point probably not a very profitable one also there was a sort of military installation across this island at one time that also doesn't seem to be operational anymore and then on top of that you've got all these maniacs partying and painting the place in garish colours and that feels like you can kind of pick away at over time so okay let's um combine discussing the end game a bit with discussing the multiplayer in this and the juliana concept so matthew as you point out there is a scripted encounter with her at first and then later on she'll pop up in your game i imagine the vast majority of people will play this game in single player mode you can turn it on so it's just the ai juliana who attacks you she always knows where she you are where you are she'll pop pop up um she'll usually have some kind of like novel power she's using and then she'll like start a fight and most of the time you'll be able to kill her and take a kind of slab from her or a slab upgrade and then move on but the point i'm at now is i've got the final loop that i can repeat over and over again and all i want to do is invade other players games <laughs> and have other players invade me and it took me reaching the end of the game to realize that juliana is the end game and her interrupting that loop is what will keep you playing after the credits have rolled jeremy do you agree with that i completely agree and just because of the way the review process has been on this online has only just been unlocked so i played through the whole game with juliana as a uh, an ai and didn't play as her and now went away for a week on holiday came back and now i've dived into what feels like maybe a whole second half of the game as juliana even though there's no there's no sort of developing story on that aspect it feels it really does feel like the end game where your strongest weapon is a kind of guerrilla knowledge of the maps because as juliana you only have one life and Colt potentially has three in a level, so you don't have to get the drop on him just once. You have to do it three times unless he kills himself from some other, you know, part of the map with some NPCs. But it it really I guess this is really where the stealth unfolds in this game as well. You really have to think about your sort of routes to attack and just kind of hold in your head everything you know about these levels if you're gonna have a chance of beating other players i think it's weighted in the right way as well because you know the the single player or the the cult player has the most to lose because they're potentially you know in the third or fourth level of their day and because of the roguelike element of the game they could lose stuff that they've built up over the last few hours so it's it's they have an easier time in this dynamic but yeah that feels right um, that it's really it's really hard to win as Joanna, but I feel like I'm sort of coming to to grips with it now, and it does feel like that's true mastery in this game is to be able to do that. Yeah. So let me tell you a bit about my encounters with Juliana. So, okay, I mean they've all been really funny. First of all, <laughs> like um, so, like Jeremy says, having an intimate knowledge of the maps is just incredibly important to being able to do this properly. Because when I've played as Juliana. 
it's um, zapped me into Updarm at night. So there's obviously a party going on. And what's interesting is you're just looking for clues that Colt has been around. So you'll see some turrets that have been hacked by him. You know, you might see like an area that's meant to have NPCs, no longer has NPCs, but you see some remains and you're like, okay, he's been around here. And then I did find one of his dead bodies at the side of a cliff. So obviously the player had fell down, which was funny. (laughs) And then I got to the, I, I was going through the party looking for him, sort of skulking around. And he'd like, he died in front of a turret in like the courtyard of the party. And I was like carefully looking at it thinking, where might he have gone? And because he had, like, one more reprise, he popped up behind me and just shot me. And I was like, <laughs> ah, fuck. Um, but when I've been playing as Colt in Updarm at Night, I had the funniest the funniest experience yesterday, which was I had a player relentlessly pursuing me. And here's the thing, right? If Juliana opens the door in the map, then, like, you as Colt see that the door is open, and you're like, I know that door's closed because I've been through this map many times. So mm-hmm. I know that she was looking at this bit of the party for me because she thought, okay, well, this is probably why Colt's here at night. He's trying to hear, he's here to finish the loop and kill Alexis, the uh, visionary at the party. And <laughs> what happened was that um, I, I went back to where the, uh, you have to hack like a, a sort of like antenna in order to escape the level again. And um, Juliana, one of Juliana's goals is to stop you from doing that, basically. And I went back and like, um, hacked the antenna while that while the juliana was looking for me at the party and then i think like that that made the player sense okay well if he's hacked that then i know he's in the other part of updime he's not here and they they came after me and (laughs) one of juliana's like um powers she's got like a power that colt doesn't have which is she can take the role of um any npc in the game but it's a dead giveaway when you see a crash test dummy doing the most rad fucking parkour <laughs> across the rooftops <laughs> of Updone. <laughs> You're like, that's subtle. I mean, oh, look, <laughs> that NPC appears to be teleporting. And then you just get into like this sort of um, this great firefight with them. And then, you know, she killed me next to the antenna. But when I did reprise, I was on a, a rooftop nearby and she was investigating my body and I just sniped her from the side and took her out. And that was such a satisfying encounter because that is the thing. Players can't help themselves. They can't behave like NPCs when they have that power activated. Um, I, a, I went to another part of the, the world and Juliana appeared, swiping at me wildly with a machete. I, I, it just It's actually really good at creating funny moments because you just don't know what players will do. Yeah. Um, mm. And this is before the game's actually like live. So I don't know what it's like to test in a live environment. I had a little bit of lag playing as Juliana in the um, pre-release phase, but they, they did you know caution that it wasn't ready yet. But the potential is enormous, isn't it, Jeremy? Yeah, I had a little bit of lag as well, but generally I had a fantastic time. Yeah, with the masquerade skill that Juliana's got, there is some... Um potential for social stealth for for the patient i guess um, but yeah. that party really is something else as juliana for one thing because the npcs are your mates you get to wander around and hear all the bits of dialogue that you wouldn't normally hear because you know you're shooting the place up or you're trying to sneak around i had an amazing <laughs> encounter with uh, oscar the editor of play magazine where um, i was masquerading as someone in the party and he was effectively hunting me as Colt. There's a real sort of cat and mouse dynamic to that. Mm. Um, and I was stood behind a bar trying to blend in. And I saw, when the other player's invisible, there's a sort of, how would you describe it? A kind of shimmer, right? There's a, a slight yeah. tell. 
and I saw the shimmer coming round the side of the this cocktail bar at me and just suddenly Oscar must have seen this NPC just double jump over the bar and sprint away. You <laughs> get <laughs> these really insane um kind of social stealth into online FPS moments. <laughs> Yeah, that is exactly it. It's just so so funny. Like, uh, I I just could not stop laughing when I saw like uh, a regular <laughs> a regular ass enemy just like fucking sprinting for their life and stuff. It just uh, it's so so entertaining. Yeah. Um, oh. And I don't think I even realised what the comic potential of it was. I just thought because in the main game you get used to Juliana being a bit of a nuisance because you're like, well, these encounters are pretty similar. You kill her and you move on. And like she turns up and you're like, oh, not right now. But when you're doing the loop again, the final on, on the end game you're waiting for her to turn up because you don't you know you've proven to the game that you can kill all the visionaries so that part doesn't matter anymore but you're just there thinking come on invade my game let's just see what happens yeah and for them it's just a massive like it's like a it's like a a game you know detective game and then an fps like you say it's just really really wild and inventive so i think that's got a lot of potential yeah um, and it's got yeah i'm pumped i'm pumped to play it it should have me invade your game before the end of the weekend matthew that'd be fun but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm slightly yeah. jealous of um, of you, Matthew, and people who might get to feel that kind of terror of an invasion when you're actually midway through campaign and you have something to lose. And uh, like Samuel says, mm. it doesn't really come as a shock for us. If, if we're coming into the game, like having completed it, we're, we're trying to trigger an invasion, essentially, um, which mm. is really fun. But you don't get that sense of, you know, one of the real strengths of an invasion mode is it kind of, violates that sense of, of safety that you have in a single player game and you're like oh god <laughs> there's there's another player in here with me and that just kind of completely changes how you're looking at the environment you're in I don't know how that's going to feel in Deathloop Does it explicitly say there is a Juliana in the world now? Yes. Yeah it does oh, Okay. So it's, it makes it very clear Yeah it's not as if she could just suddenly be shooting you uh, and you have no chance but it does have some of that kind of um, in the early Watch Dogs games. I think they have really strong invasion modes where, you know, as as the invader, you're watching someone running around behaving as people do in a single player game, and they they get distracted by stuff, and you kind of wait for the ideal ambush point when they're, you know, maybe caught up off guard in a fight or what have you. The mastery in this game generally is um, is is exciting. Like I. I I haven't really, I haven't fully explored, I guess, what the potential of the different builds are. But I now have a, a sort of turning invisible, and like um, it's got a version of the um, Dishonored Domino power in this um, called Nexus, where whatever happens to one enemy happens to a, a bunch of enemies. One of the coolest things I did in this was I snuck into the party at night. There is a room that is like a like a, a dance floor, basically. I cast Nexus onto all of the people below, and with a single nail made an entire dance floor just drop um <laughs> drop dead and it was like so bleak to watch but so fun and <laughs> without saying more i also managed to kill two of the visionaries with a single bullet yesterday um which i was pretty proud of nice. and i was just there thinking i wish i'd fucking streamed this or recorded it or something now all i can do is say <laughs> that it happened but um anyway um see so yeah, I, I guess before we get into some final um closing thoughts then jeremy is it is that how you feel about the um the mastery side of things do you think there's like a a real versatility to how you can shape your version of cult at the end of this game yeah and, and a lot of it comes from the uh the trinkets and the, the sort of upgrades that you can swap about for your powers and 
I don't play a lot of deck building roguelikes, but I imagine that's how mastery feels in those games as well. Like I, I ended up with a few builds that I was really proud of. One time I kind of invaded the party and I had a trinket which meant that turrets that I turned to my side were incredibly powerful. And I was also using Nexus to group enemies together so that one thing that happens to one of them happens to all of them. And a trinket which meant that enemies killed by Nexus healed me. So I ended up with this just insane full frontal assault where I was grouping these enemies together, one of them get hit by a turret, all my health would be topped up. And then equally, I had another... You kind of match them to the levels, right, and your goals. I had a sort of extreme stealth build where um, I had a trinket where if my power was drained, it would drain my health for extra power. And then I sort of souped that up with extra health regen and stuff to make sure I could survive that. But then I could become invisible for kind of several seconds longer than I would have been able to otherwise. If I'd been caught in combat, I would have been completely screwed. But you can create these really sort of um, min-maxed builds and kind of think through, like, what's going to make me the most powerful I can be for this situation. Mm. That's interesting. I, I must admit, I always found the modifiers around the edge of Dishonored like the the whalebone bits and all like the probably like the least interesting bit of those games like that 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 system like never quite landed for me in the past so I'm I'm glad that they've kind of properly nailed that here I mean maybe that's just because I didn't dig into them in Dishonored mm. um but I never really felt the desire to connect with that with those systems in the past I think sometimes in Dishonored they were just kind of wary of um not to read into intent too much but they weren't they weren't terribly powerful most of the the bone charms and stuff mm. in the way that you could the extent to which you could modify how things play in this some of them are quite extreme you can you know it ha- it has that thing that sort of card game thing where you will get a certain trinket and look at it and go i can build around that like there's there's got to be a sort of overpowered thing that i can do with this and then sort mm. of pick up more and experiment with with um you know pushing them together and see what happens in which case then like uh let's wrap up then by uh i guess i guess jeremy it, you, it gets a firm recommendation from you right yeah yeah I've, uh when when does this go out i'm trying to work out uh, this is going out about, about three days after the game comes out okay so imminently if not already play magazine in the uk will be out with my 10 out of 10 recommendation of Deathloop, which i think sends it straight to the top of the mag's kind of hall of fame of what you should get on a ps5 yeah and you know i have have the odd reservation like this the slight lag hopefully that doesn't persist and you know what matthew was talking about with the sort of the plot being slightly ahead of you at times that's really all there is i I think could be the equal of dishonored 2 for arcane it kind of pushes into you know a, a sort of more friendlier a sort of more accessible version of their strengths but doesn't really compromise any of the stuff which makes their games incredible i mm-hmm. i really think it's a game of the year contender yeah for me i i'm reviewing of tech radar i haven't settled on my score yet i think like it, it won't get a perfect score for me because i'm still i'm not totally comfortable with where it falls as a stealth game versus a combat game but mm. i still think it's fantastic i think that 
in a lot of ways, I think this has been asked to do too much heavy lifting as the one big PS5 exclusive that's out this holiday season <laughs> because it's you know it's still an oddball game in a lot of ways. It's you know it's made for a subset of people rather than everyone, like a lot of um, Sony's exclusives are. And you know that is a lot to ask of a game from Arcade, but I think that people who who like Dishonored will definitely dig this for sure. Matthew, do you have any thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, I look forward to playing more of it and i hope that it has a bit more mainstream appeal i hope it just reaches a few more people which i think it probably could Mm -hmm. just because tonally it's much funnier and much easier to like already after just a few hours i think than than dishonored um but uh yeah yeah great stuff okay let's take a short break then and we'll come back with some immersive sim chatter So, in this section, we're going to talk a bit about the history of the immersive sim genre, which is one of Jeremy's specialties. So, this genre essentially starts in the early 90s with Looking Glass Studios' Ultima Underworld games, a spin-off from the Ultima series. These games are praised for their emergent gameplay, and Looking Glass Studios would go on to make similar types of games in System Shock and the Thief series following that. By the late 90s, they're experiencing some financial issues, and producer Warren Spector, his part of Looking Glass, essentially dissolves in order to keep the company afloat. And just as these Austin-based developers are out of a job, John Romero rocks up of Ironstorm, and he struck a deal with Eidos to make four games, I think, and essentially offers this group of developers to carry on making the kinds of games that they're good at. So out of this comes Deus Ex. And this studio, Ironstorm Austin, would go on to make another Deus Ex game, and then Thief Deadly Shadows. They would eventually get out of business. Looking Glass had previously gone out of business in 2000, So the genre experiences a slightly fallow few years, but it has modern successes in the likes of Arcane Studios in Lyon in France, who would go on to make the Dishonored series and be acquired by Bethesda. And Eidos Montreal would bring the Deus Ex games back in 2011 with Human Revolution and then Mankind Divided. The strange thing about the immersive sim is the fact that there's never really been a blockbuster success in this genre, despite the fact that these games are incredibly influential which is almost paradoxical in a way. So what is an immersive sim? For those listening at home who don't really know, I thought I'd just um, find how Warren Spector defined it in a Gama Sutra article, which I will link with the um, the show notes in the description because um, I've stolen their content. So uh, it's an immersive <laughs> simulation game in that you are made to feel you're exactly in the game world with as little as possible getting in the way of the experience of being there. Ideally, nothing reminds you that you're just playing a game. Not interface, not your character's backstory or capabilities, not game systems, nothing. It's all about how you interact with a relatively complex environment in ways that you find interesting, rather than in ways the developers think are interesting, and in ways that move you closer to accomplishing your goals, not the developers' goals. Jeremy, that statement, Warren Spector, the whole deal, go. What's your What are your thoughts? <laughs> so... Um... It just so happens in, I think, the current issue of PC Gamer, there's a feature in which I talk to Warren Spector about the influence of D&D on uh, immersive sims. I guess when we think about Dungeons & Dragons in games, it tends to think of the the kind of dice rolls and the goblins and stuff that you you tend to get in the direct adaptations. But um, quite early on, Warren Spector was in a D&D group run by Bruce Sterling, who went on to be very well-known cyberpunk author 
because nothing in Warren Spector's life could just be normal and low key. Um, <laughs> and he he kind of fell in love with the sort of shared authorship of it and the idea that you know Bruce was kind of coming up with these obstacles and the you know the other players would be the ones who determine how they overcame those obstacles and the dm's job was to you know try and accommodate their ideas essentially and that's where the immersive sim kind of came out of was the having all these kind of systems to support physics and how you know different elements of the world interacted with each other was all about making sure that if a player thought well maybe i could try this then they'd be rewarded for it and it it might work or if it didn't work then something interesting would happen at least is that basically why games journalists revere these games is that because that sort of possibility space is just more exciting to us than games that feel like they're more prescribed is that fundamentally what their appeal is yeah i think so i think it's um you know if you play as many games as games journalists do i think that naturally you start to see the joins and get a bit jaded about some of the tricks that you tend to see and so i think it's natural for um you know to be excited when you try something and it and it does work even though it's not what you've been told to do i think uk games journalists especially and pc games journalists have a sort of natural inclination to you know if if you're in a a, a demo for a game with a developer looking over your shoulder and they say well now you could, could turn right and um and get in the car you just instinctively want to turn left and, <laughs> and see what happens <laughs> and immersive sims are the games that reward you most for doing that though these are the games that the developers have gone out of their way to go somebody will turn left so what's going to be there and how can we make sure that they feel good that they were recognized in trying something that wasn't immediately obvious Mm. Matthew, what's your relationship to this genre? Yeah, I mean, uh, in my head, this genre, I'll say from the start, is like a lot bigger than I than I remember it. <laughs> you know, like watching things for this this episode, and you know, just just you know, reading some interviews, reading some articles, most of which are written by Jeremy. Um, <laughs> uh, so I don't want to just parrot back his own thoughts at him. And you know, I was just surprised at how few kind of core texts there really are that define this alleged genre it's almost so small that you think is it is it is it actually a genre or is it is it is it specifically the work of a particular group of people because there's so many connect you know, so much connective tissue between the teams is it actually you know is would it be better off calling them spectra likes or something but yeah i mean yeah on the allure of them you know i think for a lot of a lot of gamers pc gamers of of my age you know was sort of cemented you know reading pc gamer and famously kieran gillen's deus ex review where it just sounded like you know the the entire world sort of simulated in a way you know the 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 you know the way he structured that review where he just talked about the same scenario but coming at it completely differently and how the game reacted and supported it every time and that just felt like alive um, you know, we've mentioned this on the podcast before with sort of Zelda games, you know, this thing where developers who can kind of second guess everything you're going to do or create systems that can second guess what you're going to do or support whatever you're going to do just just feel like sort of magic in a way that, you know, a baked in reaction uh, never can. 
I do think it's weird, actually, that, that quote you read from Spectre about developers getting out of the way. Because in my head, like, they also, you know, they're essential for creating fun tools. Like, I, I associate, like, interesting creative tools which come from somewhere, which give you a, a, a you know, a box of tricks to kind of play with, which that, that, that quote maybe sort of undermines that a bit. Uh, maybe. I mean... I suppose the point is that once they've given you the tools, they're not getting in your way. That's the kind of that's the point, I suppose. What they've presented mm. to you, they're not getting in the way of that. Is kind of how I interpret yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, but they give you like crazy functions which are like beyond. Yeah, I, I, I associate, I guess, crazy out there functions with these games and and you know the ability to do certain things which just aren't in other games and their you know their abilities or weapons or equipment which have lots of multiple uses to them but i guess that's probably still supported by that quote yeah i, I know what you mean there's a kind of um there's two ways of, of kind of approaching it really like this is there's probably not a genre that's been so heavily theorized and and talked about in this way partly because i think mm. looking glass was you know a lot of people from mit and at one point they even talked about establishing like an internal lecture series like that even there that didn't take off but I don't think there is really a kind of a set of developers who, you know, have publicly spoken about the craft so much. Um, mm. And in that way, it can seem quite abstract and kind of lofty, I guess. But at the other end of it, these are generally, you can see these games, you can recognize them by a bunch of tropes that they have as well. Like, you generally, if you there's a, an action approach and there's some ways around that maybe you're crawling in some vents there's probably turrets that you can turn to help you (laughs) usually you're some kind of super spy with some kind of supernatural or cybernetic abilities so even though like you know Warren Spector can say you know the designer's hand isn't so much in an immersive sim as in another genre actually you can see the kind of the trends and the the taste of these the set of people which like you say many of them have kind of Arcane Austin for instance that's the same city that Ironstorm Austin was in and many of the stuff carried over from there and Ironstorm Austin that was originally the thief team at Looking Glass so it's an mm. even smaller genre than it appears really it's mm. very much built on the, the taste of a, quite a small pool of Americans and now French people. And can- and Canadians, <laughs> sorry. No, just Montreal Canadians. So, Jeremy, how has the genre changed over time? What are the corners generally cut to make it work in the modern age? For me, uh, it's become like one of sort of like sanding off some of the weirder edges a bit and making making them just a bit more playable. We talked about how um, you know, you're tasting games, how when you start playing these, these are PC-only uh, games and you know you'd never see a you know a blockbuster just release on PC these days. It doesn't happen. It comes to console, so that means some shortcuts in terms of interface and and um, even though I think the spirit of the games has been has been retained, there's something kind of like wild about some of those earlier games that and and challenging and specific that maybe you don't get in the modern age. What do you think about how it's changed over time? Yeah, I guess the turning point for that was Bioshock, right? And that was it's both the first enormous immersive sim hit and depending on who you ask not an immersive sim because it simplified Mm. a lot of stuff i mean for me personally i i class it as one and i love that game but um you know it's it was made by the team 
the key figures who'd made System Shock 2, but it was also a deliberate attempt to kind of go, how do we make this a not just a PC thing, but something that takes on the kind of accessibility that something like you know GTA 3 had had, where rather than pressing a button to walk up to the car and then open the door and then climb in and another button to close the door and then another to hold a gun to the guy's head or whatever you do that all in one button press Bioshock is like how do we how do we do this for the age of you know you put it sticking everything on a controller and making it less intimidating Mm. it's weird though because I feel like that's been that approach has been somewhat rejected since like the games that studios like Arcane and um you know the more recent Deus Ex games they've they've stepped back a little bit from some of that simplification would you say yeah no I'd, I'd, yeah I'd, I'd agree with that I thought I think Ken Levine's like a weird figure in 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 the genre in terms of I I always see him like I associate him with being more like a narrative guy and like a narrative sort of vision maybe that's wrong maybe I don't know his career well, well enough but to me that's always been the strange thing in that these games are like emergent and reactive mechanically but also have these really incredible baked in stories to discover which are very scripted and authored and it's i've never quite married those two things and i don't know if there is like a tension within the genre between those two things and like bioshock is definitely more of the you know i'd say has puts narrative forwards for me like it's mechanically the least it's. I would say it's almost not an immersive sim mechanically, but yeah, it still has that. Um, another sort of key immersive sim thing, which we haven't talked about so much yet, is the the way exploration feels like a kind of archaeology, and you're you're digging through a world. Maybe it's you know dystopia. Maybe it's not quite there yet, but you're sort of reading notes or listening to audio diaries and stuff. That's kind of a cliche now, but that's that's where that stuff came from. Is immersive sims. And Bioshock, and so you think it's, so? You think it's the narrative, like delivery method? Yeah, I, is 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 that's the define that's the defining feature rather than the actual kind or depth of the narrative. It's, it's so weird because, like, there are so many aspects to immersive sims, and you can accentuate some and remove others. And some people will say that's still an immersive sim, and others will say, well, that's not it for me. I, I think for Ken Levine, mm. it seems as if. You know, he came up through Looking Glass, and he seems more willing to kind of compromise or throw aside uh, some of that mechanical intricacy and mm. focus more on the narrative intricacy and that sort of disordered story that you put a lot of it together in your head, even though there are these, you know, kind of strong beats that come in at the same time for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe a fork in the road, Jeremy, that follows System Shock is that the whole thing with um, System Shock was they wanted to get out of just doing dungeon games, basically. And at that point, the setting and the villain become like an enormous part of the experience of those games. And you wonder if maybe that is the part that Ken Levine gravitates towards. That's the part he's interested in, that, wor- that world-building side of it. Whereas the kind of like mechanical sophistication lives on another track maybe do you think there's anything in that yeah and i think if i if i'm honest with myself about what got me into thief 2 originally it was the atmosphere which i wouldn't want to call it oppressive it's not quite it's sort of porridgey like it's it's just this incredibly (laughs) thick intense atmosphere and the fact that you can pick up all these sort of objects in the world and it feels 
tactile and and as if you're there in a really sort of deep sense and that's what that's what Levine and Irrational really kind of leaned into and I think you also get that in Arcane games but they've kind of continued a thread that was thrown away in the late noughties in terms of how what happened to the immersive sim and how it's influenced modern games Jeremy how do you measure its influence on modern games I feel like you see it everywhere but in more diluted forms and there's some compromise there that's maybe a little sad but also still speaks to how pervasive this genre has been yeah it is everywhere I mean the lead designer of uh, Fallout 3 and 4 Emil Pagliarulo is um, he was at Looking Glass and he designed one of Thief 2's best level the rooftop one uh, Life of the Party I think it's called which is quite influential on Dishonored I think but yeah he went off to make Fallout 3 and his single biggest influence on that game was Deus Ex and just just accounting for Fallout 3 that's an enormous influence on the entire industry but I, I, I remember having a moment when Assassin's Creed was big in its kind of earlier um, iteration of more kind of stealth focus and it having this kind of you know sandbox approach to tackling areas and um, you could stealth areas and you could fight your way through them and just so much stuff that had come from immersive sims and was then the the most mainstream most popular series you could get um, it, it, there was a really weird point where it felt like there were no immersive sims and yet they like a lot of the lessons were just kind of had seeped into everything else by designers who seemed to to admire them mm-hmm. At the same time, if you loved Immersive Sims and you played those games, you would get jarring moments where you'd reach a kind of edge of synchronization in a map in Assassin's Creed. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go around the back of this fort. And it says, nope. And you think, oh, well, there's something that's been missed there, a lesson that hasn't been mm-hmm. carried forward. But yeah, I, I do think, you know, Last of Us Part Two and, and all sorts of incredibly mainstream games have picked up stuff from Immersive Sims. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Why do you think the genre itself has kind of like been either neglected or not picked up on? Is it just a commercial thing? I think it's a commercial thing and because they are built around optional content fundamentally. Sorry for using the word content. I know there are some peers who <laughs> flinch uh, as I say that, but there's um, it just gets naturally harder the more expensive AAA games get. Suddenly building an extra room is a really big deal and involves many people instead of one on the lunch break essentially like and so it becomes much more cost effective to make a game where everyone's going to see all the good bits whereas immersive sims are fundamentally about giving you moments that not everyone has had like there's a there's a moment in mm-hmm. deus ex where a character who's very significant to you is about to be captured or killed and they tell you to run they tell you to go and when I first played that as a teenager, I took that at face value, and I, and I ran, and I thought, oh god, that was that was awful, and it felt like a really sort of, you know, emotional kind of authored moment. And I later saw the body of that character, and I, and I felt the guilt for it. And only talking to other people did I find out that you can stay and have an enormous firefight, and essentially a whole other level there that you're not told about. Like you just have, you just kind of, it's left to you to try. I think stuff like mm-hmm. that is um it's got to be a hard sell a lot of big studios to say let's design an entire 
firefight through a hotel that we will then not tell the player about. Yeah, I think um, one thing that emerges from reading your all history of Deus Ex that you published last year, Rock, Paper, Shotgun, I'll again um, link that in the notes, is that this was created in a very specific kind of weird bubble where they were relatively untouched because, you know, uh, John Romero and his studio were the kind of like sort of bizarre party attention-grabbing studio and Warren Spector and his sort of like team of um, looking glass people and you know a bunch of new people they had come in were kind of left to be wildly experimental so it's a it's a really weird game deus ex like an everything game do you think that's like um that's part of why we don't see it as well it's because deus ex just came to life under very specific circumstances yeah and i also think that you could set up those same circumstances 10 times and probably nine times out of those 10 it would turn out like an absolute pile of dog shit. There's just the, the <laughs> development of that game was was insane. The, as they kind of like uncovered in the oral history, Warren Spector had two separate competing design teams, and never really resolved that tension. Just kind of let it play out. And I imagine there are many other games that have been developed in a similarly messy way that are just no fun to play because they don't have a distinct voice. What ended up happening in Deus Ex is it has this incredible variety to it that even most immersive sims don't have, where not only do you have incredible choice within a level about how you approach it, but the levels themselves are very different from each other. And you have incredible big city hubs like Hong Kong, which is one that, you know, the modern Deus Ex developers, you can feel them still kind of working to match that now. But you also had this kind of, you know, like a hotel firefight or whatever, or some, which could also be a kind of intense stealth sequence. And one level I totally forgot about until I was replaying it for the oral history is a kind of prototypical gone home where there's no combat. Harvey Smith, who's the creative director at Arcane, he, he was kind of led, led this level and it's a you follow a sort of resistance leader around the home of her dead mother who was a, an Illuminati leader and just kind of hear her sort of like wistful reminiscences about their life like it's a level about trauma of losing a parent essentially that's just that's just insane to me that this game has all of these different voices and constantly surprises you and yet you know, all these people, or at least enough of them, came from the same or similar background, baked in the same way of thinking as Warren Spector, that it all comes together. Yeah, for sure. Mm. So I definitely wanted to touch upon the different key strands of um, the immersive sim before we wrap up. So Deus Ex, we discussed a bit, Jeremy. I, I was curious, because I know you've been playing Invisible War a bit recently, and I've actually been playing Deus Ex properly for the first time recently. And it's quite interesting to reverse engineer how how it changed over the years and how how it did get sanded down the sort of weirdness of it and the vastness of it. Uh, how do you, what do you make of the way Deus Ex kind of like um, changed after that first game? Mm. It's funny, Matthew. You talked about sort of PC snobbiness, and I think generally speaking, dumbing down for consoles was was kind of a myth. <laughs> Deus Ex, unfortunately. Oh really? I mean, like generally speaking, I think that that case was kind of overstated that you know pc games were, oh sorry console games were, were dumbed down for an audience at the time but deus ex invisible mm. war was one where 
making it for Xbox as well as PC was a real sort of fundamentally painful decision for that team and that game. They ended up Mm. before the end of finishing it, slicing up all the levels to fit them into memory on Xbox. And because of that, it never quite feels fully like a place. It's it's kind of upsetting because it, it came at exactly the right time. Like Knights of the Old Republic had come out. You know, what were the big games on Xbox at the time? Knights of the Old Republic and Halo. And Deus Ex Invisible mm. War kind of sits in the middle of those. Like, it, it should have been perfect, but it really struggled with that. In fact, that was probably the first attempt at a real simplification of immersive sim design mm. and how they were presented. But unlike Bioshock, it, it didn't work. It didn't succeed. And I think that was a kind of real... Although I love a, lo- a lot about that game, it feels very similar to me to play to the original Deus Ex in many respects, but it kind of put a full stop on what was the leading light of the genre at the time, and I think mm. you know that the genre kind of took a while to recover as a result of that. Yeah. It's, it's, in- it's interesting because like some of the complaints people have about that game in terms of some of the simplifi- simplification it it had, I think now you might call like design elegance, yeah. kind of like simplifying like some of the particular like resource management like ammo and uh, like I think they combine certain bits of equipment and stuff and actually that was something I got from what little I've played of Deathloop is I was kind of impressed actually how little you're sort of dealing with like inventory wise mm-hmm. like there's like three ammo types for the three gun classes loads of variety within those gun classes but quite kind of simplified like a, a kind of all in one hacking device that, that does that can achieve an awful lot you know by itself and uh, you know that's that's a good trend i think you know that's that's like an edge i i'm happy to see sort of sanded off immersive sims and it's just funny to see people react so negatively to that process in invisible yeah War. definitely it was ahead of its time in in some respects and replaying it I, you know it has the same um game director as dishonored too, harvey smith and I can see stuff in Invisible War now that is is in Dishonored and is totally uncontroversial, but at the time, like you say, there was the the universal ammo system was a big controversy for you know PC players who were maybe a bit too stubborn at the time. But what that does is it groups all the kinds of ammo together, which means you run out of ammo more often, which means you're forced to make interesting choices and tackle things in ways you maybe wouldn't have more often like that to me feels like a fantastic design decision but at the time everyone (laughs) practically universally thought it was terrible Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's interesting as well uh, jeremy because that stuff gets conflated with the downgrading scale as like examples of how they've compromised it for console players so when you make a good decision in the midst of something like that all people are focused on is the fact that you know the levels feel tiny uh, compared to the scale of the original game and it, it's tough you know that's just how how reactions to these games work from from these types of player bases yeah okay that's great i mean deus ex as well like um do you think that the idos montreal games managed to get a bit closer to what the original games were going for and um, what were your thoughts on those ones yeah in many respects i i think they made some sensible choices about sort of narrowing the themes of them like the original deus ex and invisible water I just like the ramblings of several political theorists all forced into one game, which is kind of incredible to play. It's like a it's like a fun version of Twitter, but it's um, 
I can see why they didn't quite go. They, you know, they sort of focused in on transhumanism rather than in Deus Ex. You can just meet a guy in a bar and he just gives you a radical interpretation of the Declaration of Independence and why it's socialist theory or whatever. And you're like, well, that's this is a lot. This is great, but it's a lot. So, yeah, I understand why they didn't go for that for a big AAA game in the, you know, decades on. But I think it really nails that sense of surprise really I think that's the fundamental thing like it can feel a little sort of highfalutin and a bit in the weeds to the way that immersive sims are talked about but fundamentally what it does is create moments of surprise for you because things interacted either in a way you didn't expect or you tried it and you didn't expect it to work and it did and that's what they managed to carry across and it was kind of amazing and unexpected to see that happen in AAA at that time yeah mm. for sure it's just, it's just a bummer they didn't get to uh, finish that story yeah. I think they still feel compromised in certain ways too like the um, again the, the scale of the first ASX those levels are just enormous and so it's such a hard thing to follow up on because obviously they're all made with like the same sort of tile sets there's not a huge amount of variety to what they look like and making a modern level just feels much um, is obviously a much bigger task so yeah but they get close enough I think that um, the spirit is oh, yeah. I think I think uh, the the second new one whatever that was called is that Mankind, Mankind Divided? Divided yeah you know I think like Prague in that is still one of my favourite locations mm. in the whole genre in terms of just the the fantasy of like going into houses and shops and seeing them look and be like houses and shops, uh, I think it really, really delivers on that. Great Pawdy district as well, that uh, that version of Prague. <laughs> great Pawdy district. Um, okay, yeah, great stuff then. So, Jeremy, moving on to Thief a little bit, this is a series I don't know as much about. I kind of, like, always see it as the more, I guess, um, stealthy part of the immersive sim spectrum, and I know that it's kind of, like, um, horror-tinged as well, but as someone who's experienced with this series, what's the significance of Thief as a series in the um, the history of gaming? I guess it's it's super significant for at a time when the stealth genre was only really happening. It also happened around the same time with Metal Gear Solid and uh, Tenchu as well, but I was, you know, as a PC gamer, I was totally unaware of those developments at the time. I only saw Thief, and that was the first game I'd seen which made you vulnerable. You felt really vulnerable unless you had the upper hand on your enemy in terms of you know, you you could see them but they couldn't see you. So you were either a predator or you were prey depending on whatever state the AI was in. And that's something that we take for granted now. That's really sort of a, a fundamental building block of a lot of action and stealth games but that wasn't really done at the time. I don't know if I'd recommend it as a starting point for people getting into immersive sims because it has that narrow focus of you are a thief, you're not a fighter, you have a sword, you're not particularly good at using it and so you don't have the same kind of freedom of approach as you do in a Deus Ex which I think was the right decision for that game Um, but you can't it's probably not a very satisfying uh, straight ahead action experience to be had in a thief game that would feel like just Mm playing it wrong I think but just an astonishing level of atmosphere as well the sound design was almost kind of a a deafening you know cave noise right when you're in a a cave for whatever reason and you can sort of 
you would you would maybe say it's silent, but at the same time, there's a deafening roar coming from somewhere beneath. That's what thief games sound like, and the moment you kind of stick your earphones in to play one of those games, you're just completely engrossed in that deafening silence. And within that, they have a really mm. fantastic system for surfaces, which I think is something that hasn't really been carried forward enough. Although, weirdly, in Bioshock Infinite Verility Part 2, they did it. They had, they had surfaces <laughs> of glass and stuff that made different levels of noise. And you've got to be really aware in Thief about where you're walking and what that's going to sound like to the enemies around you, which was not a thing in games before that point. I always remember struggling with the concept or the silliness of, is it moss or grass arrows? Yeah, moss, yeah. The idea of like an arrow that is somehow full of moss and <laughs> like putting all this moss down, surely someone would notice if their regular patrol route suddenly has just a shitload of moss. They'd be like, well, that's not right. Uh, I would I would think that. Uh, I always thought that was silly. Uh, not that, that I'm not going to say it. it wasn't like a deal breaker or anything. I, I loved Thief too. Yeah, if you've been a um, producer but... on Thief, you just killed the immersive sim dead right there because the moss was too silly. <laughs> it's just, it's just a shame. You know, this 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 is an example of one which does focus in on like, you know, one strand which is sort of stealth and but does it so fully, and you can sort of express yourself within it. Like there's the tools are, you know, really kind of flexible. Yeah. Um, it's it's a shame that that people haven't kind of applied this thinking to like other genres. Uh, you know, I, I, it's very hard to think of an of an of anything kind of like this in like the action space, which has that same kind of sort of flexible approach. But yeah, it was thrilling. Thief Two is really good. I haven't played it since I played it originally, so no idea if it holds up. Yeah, I mean, it does hold up, but I think you know, like the kind of discussion we've just just had. You're sort of putting it into historical context to say this was really exciting then. It still is exciting to play. It's still deeply atmospheric, but it's not, mm. you know, it's not novel in the same way. A lot of what it does, you can see in um, in Dishonored. I'd still recommend people play it. The world building is incredible. I think that's another reason why games journalists love immersive sim Samuel is that they're really writers' games, even though. There's not a lot of dialogue in them compared to, you know, many games. But mm. there's so mm. much written and then kept behind the scenes and you can feel that a world has been fleshed out but hasn't been just given to you in a codex or exposition and that is just the most alluring thing for a certain kind of person, a.k.a. Mm. a games mm. journalist. <laughs> By people with exquisite taste as well. Yeah, that's that's like a big part of it. Just a complete side note, by the way, the um, the D and D game you mentioned earlier that Warren Spector had, like, didn't that last for years and years as well? Isn't it like a, it wasn't like an epic that spanned like decades? I think it. I remember reading that in Jason Schreier's book. Is that right? Yeah, he, for many years, like they, you know, I got some email answers back from Warren about this, and he was talking about how his kind of gang of, of friends kind of grew up from from little sort of urchins in this port town and eventually became sort of local legends and he told me that ever since he's just been trying to get back to the feeling of that D&D game and to give that people to others that's just been, kind mm. of been the defining trait of his career and, and what he's passed on to countless other designers who've then spread out through the industry 
It's mad that the only interaction I've had with this legendary figure, uh, I was forced to talk to him about Epic Mickey. <laughs> that's a that's a classic uh, Nintendo mag experience, isn't it? To have a legend in front of you and to go, so uh, this this yeah. uh, this thing I'd probably rather not talk to you about. He was really trying to sell it as having the qualities of those his earlier games, though. He really believes that Epic Mickey is is the kind of child gateway drug to Deus Ex. <laughs> yeah, I think he intends um, to do that with everything he does, but it hasn't it hasn't yeah. quite happened since then for him. No, it's actually like a real bummer to hear about how hard he found it to get games made and to get like financial backing. You're like it makes the industry look pretty terrible and uh yeah, yeah, it's uh definitely worth reading that um that chapter of Jason Schreier's book it's the opening and it's really a fascinating story but um, I mean he did literally manage to to get Disney to trade a real human for a cartoon (laughs) rabbit so that's pretty impressive what so that was an actor right what was the what's the deal Uh, I think it was a it was ESPN guy it was yeah it was an ESPN thing yeah they swapped him for the the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit wow right (laughs) if I was that dude I'd be like oh come on (laughs) Yeah. Like, that thing doesn't even exist. Just draw another rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose then, Jeremy, following on from Thief, Dishonored then, like, um, what are the kind of parts of Thief that pass down to Dishonored and, wh- and what does it represent as a kind of like modern version of the immersive sim? Immediately I think of that rooftop thing, the, the life of the party level from Thief 2. I remember starting to play Dishonored and walking across the tiles of some Victorian hovel and just hearing the clink of them and think, oh my god, it's back. Thief is back. <laughs> and that sort of gentle but inexorable push towards stealth, right? The, you play Dishonored and nobody really tells you to sneak explicitly at any point and yet it's just made overwhelmingly obvious to you that that's maybe what you should be doing. <laughs> I think that's what most Dishonored players end up doing. And you know, if you do stealth in Dishonored, then it, that's that's Thief. You know how Thief plays. It's it's slightly less about uh, light and shadow, the kind of more modern emphasis on line of sight. And, and I think if you're higher up in the world, then you're less seen than if you're on the ground, which I think is true to life as well. But um, yeah, all that sort of. Is this from your? Have you got ample experience of sneaking around the rooftops? There, <laughs> well, I do remember having played Dishonored, like Blink, just changing the way I saw the world and just walking around outside my house and and just like mentally tracking where I would blink to on these rooftops. Just completely ruined my brain in a fantastic way. Pavement's not good enough for you anymore. (laughs) But yeah, that's that's sort of like Thief is baked into Dishonored in the way stealth feels and the density of the, the atmosphere of those games. And even some of the kind of factions in the way into play. You've got in Thief you have the Hammerites who are sort of order and uh, and literal hammering. They're into industry and stuff, and then the uh, <laughs> pagans, I think they're called, or paganites. It might be a knight on the end of there, who um, who sort of represent, you know, chaos and artistic freedom. And in the Dishonored games, you have a very similar dynamic uh, sort of fight between the, the church in that game, who are all about, you know, sort of work for idle hands, you know, to keep you from kind of losing your way. And then you have the witches and the outsider who are this sort of incredible 
force. I love that Delilah, the villain of Dishonored 2, is a fantastic painter. It's like art and chaos are totally intertwined, and you get to sort of, mm. from the sidelines, which is another very thief-like thing, to be at the sidelines. Not a hero, not even necessarily an anti-hero, but just sort of observing and eventually being forced mm. to get involved. And in Dishonored, you, the same way, you see these kind of forces going at each other and eventually you maybe get a chance to kind of influence which ones come out on top to a degree. Mm. Yeah, that feels very thief-like to me. I think what's really interesting to read about with um, Arcane is that they are almost like a kind of mirror of what happens to the Austin development group that came out of Ironstorm. There's a great documentary about this on the No Clip channel that Danny O'Dwyer runs. Really, really good documentary about their origins as a studio. And they kind of like had a sort of a similar track of we want to make these cool types of games um raf colantonio is really like super confident guy they make it happen and they get acquired by by bethesda like um do you think they just have more fortune or do you think they're in the right place at the right time to to make the kind of stuff that they made i I think they both sort of looked out with an initial well, it wasn't initial for Arcane at all. They existed for a long time prior to Dishonored, but they they had this benefactor who could kind of see what others couldn't. And you know, initially it was for Ironstorm Austin. It was John Romero and his Yellow Humvee. And you know, for him <laughs> to recognise what Warren Spector could do at that time and just kind of give him carte blanche, he deserves enormous credit for that. And Bethesda, I think, yeah, or so just backing Arcane the way they have, even when the results commercially haven't always been there. They just they just know what they have. They they know that Arcane do something that nobody else can do. And, you know, they seem to have that conviction that it's going to bear fruit and people on a wider scale will see what's special about them. The thing with the Arcane is if if they ever do break through, I think they've got a bit of a timeless catalogue. Like, I think you're, you know, Dishonored, Dishonored and Prey are great and will always be great and are quite, you know, are still modern feeling enough that you know you can go back to them i think if you discover arcane at any point you know you're in for a good time and may you know i'm not going to say that's why they keep betting on them but you know you feel you can definitely see the path where someone maybe tries deathloop because it looks a bit more punchy and actiony than than their other stuff and then you know especially with game pass i guess go back and play all these these older things yeah it's a great fit for that and um, I really admire the way that Arcane and Bethesda have responded to the fact that Dishonored 2 and the one following it, Death of the Outsider, didn't sell as well. You know, Dishonored, Dishonored sold pretty well, I believe. And since then, they haven't quite managed to, you know, capitalise on that or, or really break through in the way that, say, Bioshock did. But rather than mm. get safer, their response has been to kind of just experiment even more wildly. I'm going, okay, so mm. we're going to do an FPS then, I suppose, because that's potentially more mainstream. But the FPS they've come up with is Deathloop, which, you know, I can only think in, in the FPS genre, only maybe Hunt Showdown and Doom Eternal are as strange and out there in the mainstream as Deathloop is. Mm. And again, the, the vampire game they're making, I have no idea what that is. It kind of looks from the initial trailer, but reminiscent of Fortnite in art style, and also you know, Left for Dead and sort of all the sort of co-op uh, offshoots from that in the way it plays, and yet you sort of know that it's not that. 
there's going to be they've already said there's mm-hmm. arcane baked into this I suppose the genius of what they've done I think Dinger the director of Death Leaper said this that he considers immersive sims not to be so much a genre as a set of principles so they've gone okay we can apply this to something that may have more obvious mainstream appeal but we can bring all of our ideals and quirks to bear on this and kind of sneak them into mm. the mainstream hopefully so i suppose then um jeremy just to kind of like wrap up discussing these pillars the um system shock bioshock arguably uh 2017 prey sort of like a branch of the immersive sim we talked a bit about how um uh, setting and villain are sort of like key in these strands of the um of the immersive sim but i i wondered if you had any further thoughts on on what I suppose like System Shock and Bioshock combined represented within the um, the course of the genre. They, I guess they are, they're sort of dungeons by stealth, aren't they? That side of things. They, um, mm. they, they are what lead back to Ultima Underworld, I think, and Arx Fatalis, which was Arcane's first game and intended to be a sequel to Underworld, in that rather than these discrete levels that Dishonored and Deathloop does so well, you have... I think I mean I think there there are well there are loading screens and stuff in Bioshock and System Shock, but it's you have this sense in your head of a complete space that you can go back and forth between areas of, and it's incredibly dense and you can bring aspects of it from one part to another and and kind of you know see what you can make happen. I think there's maybe not a sort of... I mean, we'll see if there's a follow-up to Prey. There certainly isn't, hasn't been immediately because that's the team that's working on uh, Redfall, the vampire game. But I don't know. I don't know if there is a sort of contemporary analogue to that side of the genre. Matthew, as from your experiences, how do you kind of like categorise um, a Bioshock in its ilk versus um, the likes of uh, Dishonored or Thief? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I never thought Bioshock had the, the same kind of... Um, mechanical sophistication you know that you you know it's expressive to, to to a degree with like the different powers and stuff but it, it you know it felt like i didn't feel like there were i found a lot of like alternate solutions say you know i didn't feel like i particularly made my own way in that world and that wasn't a problem like i don't think i even thought of it as part of that you know i, I wouldn't have put it put it even put it in the genre when i played it i mean you know knowing more about the team now than i probably did then and you know you can sort of see the kind of connective tissue a bit bit more easily i must admit i don't have any like experience with system shock it's a big old sort of blind spot it's a a game i feel i've absorbed through osmosis just from reading like pc gamer which i imagine it like a lot of people have like with immersive sims in general like when you read the sales figures of these games you're like oh wow in my head this was just as big as anything but a lot of them are like total disasters <laughs> yeah basically like none of them are i mean deus ex was successful but none of them are like by today's standards a, a smash success which is a, yeah. a weird thing to read about whereas bioshock was obviously an enormous success so yeah yeah and uh, you know they just sold the hell out of the idea i mean uh, you know as i was saying earlier i think you know ken, ken levine's more of a narrative showman i think it's quite telling that he set out to be a screenwriter and to get into films uh, you know and sort of fell into games and has sort of straddled 
the line between development and games and film since then. Didn't wasn't he meant to be writing the yeah Total Recall um, or something like that? Ken Levine was writing Logan's that's Run. It. Logan's Run. That's it. Yeah. So like you know the fact that he'd kind of had seemingly jumped ship to go into film sort of showed where his heart was and. You know, he had a better kind of image of sort of selling that, and maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm doing him a disservice with that. And you know, like I said, I have I haven't heard him talk about those older games and his role in them. But um, yeah, the kind of narrative sense. And I must admit, like for me personally, I definitely connect more with this with these games and this genre on the, like the narrative sophistication of mm. them and the atmosphere and the setting like weirdly the the kind of experimental like play systems and the flexibility of mechanics while i admire them don't speak to me as a player like i'm not a very uh innovative player of immersive immersive sims like i feel bad watching like what some people can do in dishonored and it makes me feel very plodding like i i don't know if, if just playing other games or just this is how my mind is wired, but, you know, I am quite an efficient person when I play games. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to express myself in a, in, a, in a crazy way, you know. And so I, I, I'm constantly aware I'm only connecting with these on, like, quite a surface level. I think I'm connecting them with, with them more than most because you look at their sales figure and you're like, well, they clearly speak to me in a way they don't speak to the you know the average person on the street um but i also appreciate there's like there's stuff in here that i think only five percent that i think there's a lot of stuff in these games that only like five percent of people or whatever are really kind of connecting with yeah which has kind of always been a weird tension in the thing for me and, and they sense it themselves like when they talk about the disappointment of you know people not engaging with like the action systems in dishonored or you know, there was a big focus when we were doing previews for Dishonored 2 and we did a cover feature on OXM. There was quite a lot in that about, you know, how they want to push people or, like, you know, tempt people or how to make people play with their more aggressive, violent skills. And I've always... That tension has just always been sort of super apparent to me that I'm just... Like, I literally couldn't tell you what some of the aggressive powers are in Dishonored because I never even looked at the the unlock nodes for them like i just they're just not interesting to me yeah something warren specter said in this um feature i've been working on was that immersive sims are work they're fun work but there's there's still work and they put a hell of a lot on you as a player mm. to get to get the most out of them to experiment is to kind of like really push yourself out of you know sort of personal play styles that you might have solidified for you know decades that's pretty tough to do for me, it took playing mm. um, Arcane's Dark Messiah, which is a really weird sort of somewhere between an RPG and, and Half-Life 2. It's made in the Source engine, and that's a sort of really weird action-first game. It's got a kick mechanic, which they brought back for Deathloop, which was nice to see. And there's, stealth isn't particularly viable in that one, and you've got to just sort of like push enemies into spikes off cliffs sort of like have all these sort of crashing interactions in the environment and uh, and also it comes at it from a sort of like the opposite of making you feel guilty for for uh, doing bad things you have a, a demon living in your head I think who's sort of encouraging you to go off on one 
and it took replay that for me to kind of get me in the right mindset to play stuff like Dishonored in an action way. Mm. And it's, it's it's insane how different they feel as a result um, to come at it from that mindset. But it still feels mm. like work. It still feels like, you know, in my current Dishonored playthrough, I did uh, Lady Ball's Mansion, which is maybe the most famous level. It's natural to do that in a completely stealthy way because you have a disguise. Mm. And I ended up killing lady Boyle stealthily when she nipped off to the bathroom or something and it was only after i'd finished the level and was halfway through some hub conversation afterwards that i thought no i've worked out how i want to do this and then went back and reloaded a save and there's a storage cupboard in lady Boyle's mansion for whale oil which is highly volatile and i waited until she was passing that door in her kind of cycle around the party uh, froze time jumped into the body of a rat to get into the storage room without opening the door fired at one of the whale oil containers time still stopped so it didn't explode at that point and was able to get out again and be kind of away from the scene before that exploded through the door killing Lady Boyle Like I'm, I'm so proud of that but <laughs> it was so kind of out there to think of that I didn't even think of it while I was in the level so you can hardly blame people for not, you know, being able to get the most out of these systems and the way they interact. Mm. That's a really interesting tension at the heart of the genre, for sure. Um, okay, that's, that seems like a good place to wrap up then, Jeremy. Unless there's any other games you wanted to name check here while we're discussing Immersive Sims. Um, I guess we should uh, shout out some of the the indie entries which have you know, been very welcome recently in such a sort of small genre. Uh, some of the mm. People who've worked on Bioshock games, when those studios broke up, it spawned some really interesting games. There's a guy called David Pittman, I believe. He made a game called Eldritch, which was the first immersive sim roguelike, if you want to trace that back, um, which is really fun. And then also a game called Neon Struct, which isn't very well known, uh, which feels a lot like the original Deus Ex. You know, it's not sort of narratively complex, but it's it's got that feel to it, which is really good. And then there's that game coming out called Gloomwood, which is spookily thief-like to look at. It's funny, it's, it's almost an approach to nostalgia that I theoretically wouldn't like, because it's, it's kind of nostalgia to a fault of really sort of mimicking very specific things from games in the 90s. Whereas generally, I think, you know, a lot of the sort of quality of life and simplification that we talked about has been good over time. But those indies are really sort of tapping into um, tapping into some very specific things that have sort of been sounded away over the years. Yeah, there's another one called Call Decay, which I recommend any Deus Ex fans should watch the trailer for that because it, it very deliberately taps into the intro for Deus Ex, where the, uh, the villains sort of discuss their, uh, the plan in a very conspiratorial tone. And in the Call Decay trailer, it includes the line, finalised within the week which is totally bland but is also in Deus Ex so as soon as I heard that a oh, stupid I... part of my brain was just completely won over by this game <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah. minor key games that David Pittman's um, outfit definitely worth uh, spotlighting there like you say I think the Slayer Shock as well was uh, another one of his that was like a, quite rough around the edges but um, I think interesting as a kind of mix of like Buffy basically and Immersive Sims I did play a bunch of that so yeah Great stuff. Um, 
yeah thank you so much for joining us jeremy is there anything else you wanted to add before we um before we wrap up here no it's great i guess i would just say to people that like matthew says you know in reality an awful lot of people didn't play these older games when they happened at the time and i guess i would encourage people not to be too intimidated by that you're not alone and like deathloop is a fantastic jumping in point for these kind of games it's friendly it's uncompromised and if you like it there is a whole trove of this stuff to go back to yeah i would say that playing the original deus ex is still it's still legitimately amazing because you know the breadth of choices you make and the way the game reflects those modern games don't do that they just don't so yeah it's um it's amazing to come back from a mission and have Yanatko guards just commenting on very specific things you did. They're like, oh, it's a shame you couldn't get involved in the gunfight. A bunch of my friends died. And you're like, holy fuck, I didn't even realise that was a choice I was making by ignoring that. <laughs> and yeah, I am um, still very playable, I think. And um, yeah, just uh, now, just make sure you install a mod that makes the brightness um, correct on your screen. And yeah, you'll have a good time. But um, yeah, otherwise, um, Jeremy, where can people catch you on social media? So I'm on Twitter as at Jeremy underscore Peel. Yeah, that's the uh, best, best and probably only place to go for me. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and people people can find your work on different outlets, right? Yeah, generally I remember at some point to post it on Twitter. So um, hopefully you'll uh, you'll see stuff come up there. And uh, yeah, it's been, mm-hmm. uh, it's been lovely to, to be on here. Even though I forgot to make the JC Denton, JC's Kitchen pun that I was intending to make oh. at some point during this podcast. <laughs> oh, I guess you just never had the window, did you? Oh, um, you had this amazing gag in your pocket. I love I, it. But I love that you shared it yeah. with us. Yeah, I love that you sort of reversed out of the joke instead of making the joke. That's very nice. <laughs> in the spirit of the podcast but no it's uh, honestly jeremy it's been great to have your insight and there's a you know the stuff we discussed there could have been like five different episodes and maybe there will be one day so um yeah we'll uh definitely have you on again if you fancy mm. it but um thank Love you very much you. um yeah so i'm samuel w roberts on twitter matthew where can people catch you mr basil underscore pesto if you want to follow the podcast it's back page pod on twitter if you'd like to leave us a review on apple Podcasts, that'd be greatly appreciated otherwise we'll be back next week with a new episode thank you very much bye for now And I'm like, fuck that, I'm never watching an hour. But I might watch it on fast forward, but it just means that they t- it turns everyone into like a chipmunk because they're going super fast. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, a good idea. I wonder how long it's because they it's all the American essayists, they drone on so slowly, they're like, and then in dying light, I, but if you turn them up, they're just like, yeah, and then I ran across the roof, so it was really exciting. And I'm like, this is fab. <laughs> I wonder who'll be the fuck first their craft. YouTuber to like. <laughs> offer an alternate version that's pitched down so that when you do it double speed it's the, it's the oh, correct yeah. pitch oh that'd be amazing maybe it'll be you should, um... we should do that we should uh, <laughs> capitalise on this idea first
It'll put out the pod at twice the speed, Matthew. And if people want, they can listen to it at like half the speed and get the regular <laughs> version. Um, we should uh, you should keep this as a capper to the episode. A post, little post credits uh, MCU style sting. Uh, Matthew slagging <laughs> off YouTubers for talking too slowly. Uh, oh, okay. the ones that do like two and a half hours. You're like, come on, two and a half <laughs> hours. Who's got that much time to watch someone drone on about fucking? Yeah, you know, and they give you the whole like light. behind the scenes of how they thought about when they were going to do the video before, right at the beginning. <laughs> God. Just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awful. 